cut that down a little bit. Well, maybe not. That sounds okay. So many of you know that I came from Mississippi to, to here, but a lot of you may not know what part of Mississippi I came from, or you don't remember what part of Mississippi I came from. I came from a town called Clarksdale, Mississippi. Clarksdale is a small town, at least the county I lived in was Coahoma County, somewhere around 16,000 people. Uh, so we lived there for five years, served at a church there for seven years. Um, an, an interesting place in the Mississippi Delta. Clarksdale itself is known as the golden buckle of the cotton belt, which the Delta itself is known as the cotton belt. So Tina's from there, Warner's from there, uh, the Elliots are from there. Well, Kelly was originally from Maine, but is that right, Kelly? So from Maine, so not at all the Delta. Um, but uh, So they would be familiar with some of the things that I'm saying. But one thing I want to share with you is that one of my favorite things about living in the Mississippi Delta really had nothing to do with Delta life at all, but there was a small population of Chinese people that lived in the Mississippi Delta. They lived and they thrived. A lot of them were entrepreneurs, and I'm saying the Delta, you know, spans further than Clarksdale, further than Coahoma County, but in all areas around as well. And uh, one of the, one of them, I knew several of the families, but one of the families that I was closest to were Audric and Alice Chow. Now, if I said I was closest to the Chow family, they're all the Chow family. And so, uh, so let me narrow that down. And one thing that I really appreciated about my relationship to Audric and to Alice is that those people could cook like few people I've ever met in my life, okay? You would not know this about me, but before I lived in the Clarkstown, I, I, I was a bodybuilder. I was a picture of perfect health. And then I went there and started eating that food, and it all just went away, right? So, of course, you don't believe that. But um, when we got there, we met Audrey, we met Alice over the years and became dear friends. They were a very giving family, a very loving family, a very caring family, always taking me hunting, always inviting us over for food. And on one particular day, he calls me up, and he says, hey, do you watch the show Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmern? I said, is the Pope Catholic? Yes, I watch that show. Are you kidding me? I love that show. Sarah and I, we used to uh, watch that show all the time. It was one of our favorite pastimes to try to figure out what Zimmern was going to say after he tried this or that food item. And if you've never seen the show, you can go watch it now. There's episodes. I don't think they still uh, air new shows, but you can watch the old shows and what Zimmern will do is he'll eat something, whether it's a maggot or whether it's a grub or something that's prepared in some way to be considered a delicacy, and he'll say, wow, or, you know, ooh, or he'll describe it by saying it's earthy or minerally. And it was always kind of funny to us to hear how he would describe this, this food that he thought was, was, was quite interesting. And so that was a fun time for us. Well, back to the story, Aldrich calls me up, says, have you seen the show Andrew Fu, uh, Bizarre Food with Andrew Zimmer? And I said, yes, we love that show. He said, well, if you want to come over today, they are filming at my house. <laughs> First of all, why would they be filming at your house tucked in the middle of nowhere in the Mississippi Delta? Like, this guy travels all over the world. Why would you be going to the Mississippi Delta with, with, with your crew and filming your show, well, Zimmern, uh, the Discovery Channel, they were doing a, they were doing a, they call it the Blues Trail. So they went to Rendezvous Ribs in Memphis. They went to places around the Delta, around Mississippi, to try different cuisine, whether it be barbecue or whatever. Well, on this particular trip to the Mississippi Delta, they were trying Chinese cuisine, again, in the Mississippi Delta. 
Now, I knew that they could cook well, but then I would begin to figure out that they had all these accolades and all these achievements because of their cooking, whether it be from Miss Alice's uh, cake or Audric's Chinese food. And so they brought, they brought us over, and they said, hey, why don't you come? You can kind of watch them do the filming. So I go there, I sit, and I stand behind the scenes, and they set up all the cast, all the crew, Andrew, the producer, the director, all the, all the, uh, the, the cameramen. They set up, and I'm just behind the scenes, just itching to talk to somebody, meet somebody famous, you know, maybe sign a few autographs. And I'm thinking, this is going to be fun. This is going to be a good time. And uh, they start preparing the meal. Well, this goes on for hours. Now, I've eaten with the chows many times, but what they were preparing, I was like, you're preparing food for an army. Like, why are you preparing so much food? And then what Audric taught me in that moment was we're cooking a traditional Chinese cuisine, which consists of not one, but up to 17 courses in a meal. Now, Chinese people would do that because they value honor, they value family. And so one of their time-honored things to do, one of their favorite things to do was to have these meals, and it would demand lots of time gathered around the table to spend that time with family. And you better believe that each course that they would experience, such as each course that I experienced that night, you know, while Discovery Channel was filming, was second to none. I mean, everything from the first course, I think they did something like seven or eight courses or whatever. I can't remember. You can go back and watch the show and maybe find me on the show. But there's all the, there's all, every time it comes through, every course was delicious. Everything was just a flavor explosion. It was absolutely fantastic. Absolutely, absolutely fantastic. And I did actually make it on the show one time. So kids, I am famous. So I will sign your autographs later. But uh, it, was, it, was, it was fantastic. I mean, granted, the, what you see of me on film is, from here to here, you just see me carrying a plate, but I've got a plaid shirt on. I have a, one of those uh, paracord army survival bracelets, so you know it's me, okay? So, uh, yeah, so, so probably. Um, so, it, so there you are. But th the reason I think about this, and it's, 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 a, it's a time that I like to think about. It's a moment that is special to me that I got to experience. I got to meet Andrew. I got to meet those guys. He was extremely nice, have good conversation. We did sit off camera and had a meal that we shared together with everyone, and it was great. But I remember really more than anything, how great that food was. Every course, every dish, every platter, every food item that came through was something new to me. I mean, and they cooked things that I'd never seen. There were probably things that I didn't eat because maybe it was a, a, a chicken foot or something. It was, there was some strange stuff that they made, and I said, no, nope, I have to pass, but it probably would have been great if I would have just tried it. But everything that I had was so very delicious. And the reason I share that by way of introduction is because as I was studying through this text here in John's Gospel, John chapter 14, verses 8 through 14, there were so many things that just stood out to me. And each item or each element stood on its own. Each item or element stood up as this rich in substance portion of the text. So the way I'm going to present this to you today is kind of like a multi-course meal. All right, everybody following me? As a multi-course meal, we're going to put one course at a time. I'm not telling you how many courses there are going to be. Just remember, Chinese have up to 17. So we're going to roll through each course, and I want to show you some of the substance that is there. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of John, chapter 14. I'm going to start in verse 1 just to recapture what Austin taught from last week because it transitions very nicely into this next section of the text. So John, chapter 14, starting in verse 1. And John writes these words, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus is speaking, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are 
many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Just remember this, by the way, and I don't know if Austin mentioned this or not. When Jesus goes to prepare a place, he goes to the cross. Obviously, the cross necessitated others being able to get into heaven. Now, we understand that salvifically. We understand that, yeah, well, Jesus had to die so that we could be made right. He had to atone for sin. He has to substitute himself. Um, now, there is a debate as to what happened to those who passed away under in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. Did they get to go immediately to heaven, or did they go to some place that was kind of a holding place called Abraham's bosom? There's a lot of debates on that. This is one reason that I land on the side that says people got into heaven after Jesus went to the cross. We can have discussion on that later. It's a fun debate to have. Um, either one is okay because you're saying people still get to heaven through Jesus and only through Jesus. It's just according to when they get to enter that place. And I am of the opinion that it's after Jesus died on the cross. So just letting you know. So that's some of the text where you can start to work through that as a, uh, as a theology or a Christology. So here we go. Uh, he said, if I go to prepare a place for you, uh, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also, and you know the way where I'm going. And then Thomas said to him, you remember Thomas who came later and said, I've got to see the scars. I've got to see where they pierced your, your hands or wrists and your feet. I have to see it to believe it. And Thomas said to him, Lord, where do we know? We, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. I'm the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And then Jesus said, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. So then Philip chimes in. Here's where the text begins for us today. So Jesus has already offered to Thomas an appetizer, is how we'll start this meal, right? He's offered to Thomas this appetizer. I call it an appetizer because it's the first course. It's the first course because he gives him some doctrinal substance. He says, listen, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is, this is him presenting the exclusivity of Christianity. Listen, we're in a world, especially now, where all roads seem to lead to Rome, at least that's what people are teaching, Jesus is saying, listen, now and forevermore, from eternity past, I am the only way to get to God the Father. So a massive nugget of truth right there that he offers up for Thomas as a part of this first course. And then he says, if you have known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So there's some truths that he drops right there on Thomas so that Thomas can start to understand, so that Thomas can start to develop a more robust Christology, a more robust theology. Because keep in mind, these disciples are what? I mean, they're, they're not, by and large, seasoned followers of Christ. They've been following Jesus, but they're asking questions all the time. They're confused about a lot of things. Jesus speaks in parables so that they can understand, and they're still scratching their heads saying, what are you saying, man? You know, Jesus is doing certain things, and they're asking him why. I mean, they're still developing. They're learning. They're growing. So when you look at the life of disciples, you can have a lot of hope in that because we identify with them in so many ways. You know, in the grand scheme, many of us are still growing. We're, 
we're learning. Maybe you've walked with Jesus for a long time, but you're still in the season of, man, there's so much I have to learn. There's so much I, 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 I have yet to come across and, 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 and wrestle through in my brain. And so Jesus is graciously helping Thomas develop this. So then Philip chimes in, okay? Philip chimes in and he says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. Show us the Father, Lord. It'll be enough for us. So here's the scenario. Jesus has said, look, you've seen me. Or he says, if you know me, you know him. And maybe for Thomas that was okay. Maybe for Thomas that was enough at that moment. Well, Philip says, hmm, let's go a little bit further. I don't, I don't want to just know, but I want to see. I want to I behold the Father with my eyes. And I'm not faulting Philip here. Because did Moses not do the very same thing? Maybe he framed the question a little bit differently. And we applaud Moses because Moses said, this is what I want when God said, ask. Ask one thing. And Moses said, I want to see your glory. Moses didn't say, hey, just, I want you to make a, make a, make a, I want you to really get me to that promised land, which we, all, we know that Moses did not make it because of his sin, right? Because he didn't regard God as holy. Well, what does Moses say? He just says, listen, I just want you to show me your glory. And God grants him that. He says, hide behind this rock and I will pass by and you will catch a glimpse of my glory. So I'm not faulting Philip for saying, I just want to see him. Are we not the same way? Are we not the same way that we have Jesus, we have Christ, we profess Christ, we try to live our lives for Christ, we read the Bible, we try to, we try to build up our understanding of Jesus. And then yet sometimes we say, but I just, I, if I had that, I'd be a little, I, 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 it'd be good for me. If you just show me this, just, just go this step further, and, and it'll be enough for me. So we're like Philip. I don't fault Philip for these things. I'm not angry with Philip. And he asks the Lord, he says, show us the Father, and it'll be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? So Jesus Brings down the, the mood a little bit. <laughs> he says, no, we've been together for three years. You don't know me? Have you not listened to what I've said? And Jesus has already told him, listen, I and the Father are one. Speaking specifically of the oneness that he shares with God in essence. He uses Trinitarian language and then you have Jesus responding to Philip as if Philip is not getting it yet. Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, Philip. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? In the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So the first course being Jesus offers up this appetizer to Thomas and pointing to his nature, pointing to the reality of Jesus' relationship with the Father. And then you have this second course that comes about in verses 8 through 11 where Jesus says, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. So he goes from knowing to seeing. Now, I want you to put yourself in this first century context because we've all heard things or seen things in our mind and in, in, in our lives that you think man that just blew my mind maybe you've seen someone do an illusion or some kind of magic trick or something like how did they do that <laughs> that blows my mind 
You know, maybe, maybe you witnessed the birth of your child. And you said, God, that blows my mind. That's crazy. How does, <laughs> how, does a, how, does a, how does a woman carry a child like that for nine months? How does that all happen, you know? That blows my mind. You know, so we've all had those moments. And I like to think that maybe Philip's hearing this. He says, how long have I been with you? You don't get it? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How do you reconcile that in your brain? Even, even now, even 2,000 years after these things were said, after these things happened, with all this time we've had to walk with Christ and all these days that we've had the Gospel of John chapter 14, you know, verses 8 through 11 out at our disposal, we still have a hard time reconciling these things in our brain. They blow our minds. Philip is looking for a theophany here. Philip is looking for a sighting of God the Father. He wants to see God the Father. He said, show us the Father and it'll be enough. That's, that's what we want. We have you, Jesus. Just show us the Father and it'll be enough for us. We have so much that's given to us to point to the reality and the glory of God that it begs the question, why would we ever dare to ask for more than we've already been given? A couple of weeks ago, I guess it was uh, a week ago last Thursday, I stayed out against my will with Joey to look at stars through a telescope. You know, he's, he's nerding out about his big giant tube, tube telescope thing. It's massive. And you can see the moon. You can see the craters. I mean, you, I mean, you can see everything. It's really, really quite fantastic. So we stay out and we look at the moon. We look at Jupiter. We look at Saturn. We look at nebulas, a nebula, a nebula. I wouldn't have known a nebula if it slapped me in the face until Joey shows me. That's a nebula. I'm like, that, that fuzzy thing that looks like I have cataracts or something? What, what is that? Yes, that's a nebula. How far is that? Light years. Light years? How much further is that from the moon? And, I mean, it's nuts, Right? And we're looking at that. I'm like, that's a nebula? I don't know. I, I still can't tell you what a nebula is. I just know that there is one. And I'm looking at it. And it does look like a, a furry little thing that is smudge on the lens. I mean, that's what it looks like. But that's a nebula. You could tell the shape. You could make that out. And then you go and you Google. And it's, it's consistent with everything that you see online. We saw ga a galaxy. I think we saw a galaxy. And I just stepped back and I'm thinking, my goodness. I mean, God has made all these things. You know, and, and, and the things that we can see which are few, <laughs> the things that we can see declare his glory. And they, they show us the evidence of God. They show us the evidence of intelligent design. They show us these great, great things that God has given us so that we have absolutely no excuse whether or not there is really a God or an intelligent designer. But what about all the things that, aren't, that are created that we'll never see, that we'll never know? You know, and I've said this before, and we talked about it that night. Well, those things aren't for you. <laughs> those things are for God. This world is not for you. It's for God. Your life is not for you. It's for God. And so we've been given all these things, but above all of those things that we've been given, above the nebulas, above the galaxies, above the, 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 you know, the, 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 the planets that you can see, and you can look at the rings, and you can see in fair detail, we could see the storm, we could see the, the, the bands around Jupiter, we can see all those things, and they blow my mind, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the one thing that I've been given that surpasses them all is Jesus. 
And yet, Philip comes up and he says, Lord, we have you. You show us the Father and it'll be enough for us. And it's almost like I wish Jesus would have said, no, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be enough. If I'm not enough for you, nothing will be enough for you. Or at least that's how I feel the Lord speaks to me through this text. Because I'm that guy. I am that guy, church. That's Jesus. I love you and I thank you. You've, you've revealed yourself in these ways. I want to see this. I want to see that. And where there's a side of that that I can rationalize and I can justify, and maybe you can look at me and say, that's okay, that's okay. There's an aspect of it that's not okay. Because if I've been given Christ, the all-sufficient one, why would I ever have longing for anything in addition to him? Nothing was wrong with what Philip was asking in one sense. For he wanted the very thing that was allowed to Moses when he saw the glory of God, but what Philip didn't realize was that he was given something much more than what Moses received. Moses was given a glimpse, a glimpse of the glory of God. But we have been given Jesus. So in this text, Jesus leaps from knowing to seeing. Thomas, if you've known me, you know the Father. But that's a big difference from when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And maybe it starts to connect for you now because you hear things from Scripture that say God is invisible. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So can we actually see God the Father? Absolutely. How so? In his image, Jesus because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So now we can understand how it is that Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because Jesus is the image of that which is invisible. He is the Word of God. And we understand that a word, a word helps us to conceptualize thoughts. Someone has a thought, and those thoughts become words. And when those words are released, we can then formulate the same images that began in the mind of someone else before it became words. And Jesus, as the Word of God, shows us who Jesus, who, who God the Father is. In this platter, in this course, in this dish, if we're following that metaphor, is the theological substance that is the relationship between the Father and the Son. Listen, Jesus is giving Philip so much grace here. He's saying, look, you let me, let me help you out. You're asking for this. And instead of this, he does rebuke him, but instead of just laying waste to Philip, because of his struggles here, Jesus graciously starts to explain to him, listen, listen, do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works that have been done. You see, there's this relationship dynamic between the Father and the Son, and this is important to talk about. And I'm not going to go into a lot of technical detail, but here's what's being served up as a part of this meal for the disciples. Jesus is very graciously saying, hey, you know, you know that I'm something special. You know that I'm something else. You know that I'm something above other things. But let me take you a little bit deeper 
and to who I am in relationship to God the Father. Because keep in mind their background. They understood because of Judaism. They understood God. They understood the wrath of God. They understood the justice of God. They leaned back on stories like the Tower of Babel. They see God acting and working through the flood. They see the garden. They were familiar with all of these things passed down from history. But then you have this new element, these new numbers that enter to make a new equation, and now they're seeing that this is Jesus. Could this really be the one that all of this that was talked about before is actually in him now, has actually come to fruition? So they're processing all this stuff. They're considering all these things, and Jesus is introducing to them the dynamics of his relationship to the Father. He's saying in the relationship to God, there are complexities, there are complexities in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. There are mysteries when it comes to the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. There's beauty in that relationship. There's depth in that relationship. And the way that I'll explain those is by saying this. There's a subordination in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Now in that there's some mystery because they're equal, correct? They're equal. Jesus speaks of their sameness. He speaks of their oneness. He speaks of their equality. He calls himself God, and people sought to kill him for blasphemy. Blasphemy in which way? Because he made himself to be God. Not a lesser God, not more of a God, but he made himself to be the God. And either that's exactly what Scripture says, or Jesus was making himself to be something other than the one true God. Jesus subordinated himself to God the Father. Obeying his every will, obeying his every wish. There is a doctrine that's called the eternal subordination of the Son. I don't know that I adhere to that, but many who I love and respect adhere to that. They say that after Jesus left earth and ascended back to heaven, that he continues in subordination. It's an interesting thing to read about. I don't know that I'm there at this moment. But we know that on earth, the language is very clear that Jesus subordinated himself to the Father. There's a uniqueness to their relationship. There's an acceptance by the Son of the will of the Father time and time and time again. There's a unique love between the two. There's a love that they share that we don't share. There's a love that they share that, that God the Father doesn't share with you, right? God's love for God is different than God's love for creation, than God's love for the elect, than God's love for these other things. There's, there's, there's levels and variables, and it's nuanced. But there's a specific love that is within the Trinity. It's the highest and the purest love. You see, God loves us as broken, fallen sinners. But God loves God as an infinite perfect, eternal being with an infinite capacity for love and an eternally and infinitely right and correct appropriation and pouring out of that love. It is pure in every aspect. So there's a uniqueness. There's a separateness between the two. They are two different persons. They represent two of the three persons of the Trinity. Okay, This is, this is kind of what's implied here, by the way. All right, so you're saying, where are you going with this? I want you to consider yourself as Philip right now. I want you to think of him sitting there saying, hey, uh, show us the Father and it'll be enough. And then Jesus is responding and saying, let me explain to you what you have in me. If you have me, you have the Father. 
There's a sameness in their relationship, glory, a sameness in essence, in power, in will. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about all the things that happened in the Old Testament? Whether it's miracles, whether it's God doing something that you're like, wow, man, you're awesome and glorious and beautiful, or like take creation, you say, wow, you're creative, you are intelligent and intentional. But then you look at Sodom and Gomorrah, or you look at Tower of Babel, or you look at the universal flood, and you say, whoa, man, we're seeing a different attribute, we're seeing a different aspect of God. We're seeing more of His justice. We're absolutely seeing His holiness. But if you're like me or like I was growing up, when I thought of that, I thought God. I didn't think Trinitarian in my mind. I believed that, but that's not where my mind went, default. I thought, wow, God, the first person of the triune Godhead. God's doing these things. I would submit to you that one of two things are absolute. One of the two. First of all, that Jesus, and this, this is absolute, this is not uh, one of the two. Jesus is in absolute harmony with everything that God the Father does, always. He always agrees. He's not pushing back. He's not thinking, hey, can we talk about this? Is there another, you know, you know maybe that's not the best idea. <laughs> He's in full subject. He, 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 he fully, fully agrees. They fully, fully agree with one another, okay? They're, they're, they're perfectly compatible, absolutely, absolutely complementarian. They complement and agree with one another. But everything that God the Father did was either accompanied by the works of Jesus or with the full affirmation of the works of Jesus. And I say one of the two because Scripture only says so much. Scripture does say that Jesus created all things. So in terms of creation, absolutely, Jesus. But what we, don't, what we do know is that they're, they're 100% compatible. They 100% agree. But sometimes maybe one is working where the other is in agreement or complicit. You know, uh, I don't know if both hands are at work all the time, every time, because the Scripture doesn't say. So that gets very interesting when you think of things like Sodom and Gomorrah and the reason for the gross immorality that was taking place. For those that would say, hey, you know, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. Well, Jesus was there when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. And if his hand wasn't raised, if Jesus was not the one that drew the sword with the Father, at the very least, he was there. At the very least, he was in complete compliance and in full agreement with God the Father. And so you start to pull back these layers and you see that Jesus is telling Philip a bit more than Philip bargained for. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And maybe Philip stepped away and maybe Philip is starting to draw his own conclusions. 
Maybe he did in time. Okay, Jesus has said this. What does this mean? Because that's what you and I should do. When Jesus gives us texts like these, that's how we should respond. Okay, if he says that they're the same, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. What does that necessarily imply? And then you start to build a theology off of this, these evidences, this instance that the Lord has given us. So there's a sameness between the two, and then there's a oneness. They're one in purpose, and they're one God. Three persons, but one God. Third course, look at verse 8. So Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. In this course is the all-satisfying and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Because I think the way Jesus responds to Philip is essentially saying, listen, I am enough for you. Why am I enough? You're wanting to see the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen him. If you have me, you didn't just get me, you get us all. And, and this is the beauty of this, this language here. This is, this is Trinitarian because we're not getting there today. But just after this, verse 15, the next verse starting next week, you have Jesus saying, if you love me, you keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another what? Helper. Jesus is pointing to the Holy Spirit. So now you've brought in to this dialogue the third person of the Trinity. So all are at work here. All are at work. So he's saying, you didn't just get me, Philip. You have me. You have the Father. And I'm sending the helper to you. You will have the Holy Spirit. And then all of this comes together by way of application in verse 14, which we'll get to in just a second. So Philip said, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. And I get it. We are like this from time to time. We feel that we will be satisfied with just a little more proof, a little more answered prayers, a little more signs, a little more wonders. I'm, I'm guilty of this all the time. This is one of the things that, that, that I feel like I repent of most is I'm asking for this. I'm asking, Lord, increase my faith, strengthen my faith. And instead of saying, let me see Jesus more clearly, let me understand Jesus uh, more fully, let me enjoy Jesus more, instead of going about it that way, I say, Lord, I have Jesus. Just show me some things. I mean, I've asked the Lord to speak out loud to me I don't know how many times, and I don't think he's done it yet. I think I would know if he did. And, I, and I've asked that, and then I get convicted later, not that it's bad to want that kind of interaction with God, but when it means that I don't fully see the satisfying and sufficient nature of Jesus, that's when it's wrong. That's when it's bad. Because Jesus is enough, and this is what Jesus is telling Philip. I think if we're asking anything, if, if we're asking for anything more or other than Jesus himself in order to be satisfied, then maybe we struggle to believe the true sufficiency of Jesus. If we say we have Jesus, but we're not content unless we have more material possessions, can we say we believe in the sufficiency of Christ? If we say we have Jesus, but we need freedom from our oppressors, then is Jesus truly enough? I mean, is this not the heart of what Jesus is doing at the triumphal entry? They're wanting oppression from Rome, and he's saying, what you need is me. I am sufficient. I am more sufficient than your political freedom. I'm, more, I'm sufficient enough for you that no matter what oppression, and by the way, Christians should be marked by oppression in this life. What do you think persecution is? But the heart of endurance behind persecution is what? The sufficiency of Christ. 
If we say we have Jesus, but we must have equal opportunity or equal outcome in order to be content, can we say that Jesus is enough for us? If we make demands for equality, and I'm not saying equality's wrong, but if equality is the contingency for me to be happy, for me to have true joy, then maybe I don't trust in the sufficiency of Jesus. Because Jesus said that he has come that you might have joy and fullness of joy and that you might be made complete. Ultimately, if we say Jesus is not enough, then we misrepresent the gospel because at its core, the gospel is all you need that matters. So this is where we have to be very careful with our complacency and our contentment or lack thereof. Christ came to make your joy complete, John 15, 9-11. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my, in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Listen, you cannot separate contentment from completeness of joy. And this is what Jesus provides. So in course three, we see the all-sufficient and satisfying reality of Jesus Christ. And then in the fourth course, we see that our joy and our fullness are rooted in belief. And belief is the fertile soil from which our works are produced. Your joy and fullness are rooted in belief. Verse 12, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these you will do. So Jesus says two things here, if you or three things. If you believe me, you'll do the works that I do. But not only that, you'll do greater works than these. And that's one of those moments that you stop and say, okay, that just blew my mind because what does it mean that I'll do greater works than Christ? How do I rationalize or reconcile that? I mean, if you've ever read this passage and that wasn't a bit of a speed bump for you, go back and read it again because you're not paying attention. Jesus is telling you, you will do greater works. But what does that mean? That's something we have to investigate. And you know that I will. So yesterday we go to the abortion mill and... Um, and I watch, I watch Jake, I watch my wife, I watch these people stand for what they believe. And many others have gone, not just a part of Haven Ridge, but many people do this all across the nation. And it's fascinating. Because what you're seeing, I would hope, what you're seeing is the product of someone's belief. You're seeing that they're acting and doing because of something that's in them. It's definitely not a desire to be safe. <laughs> it's definitely not a desire to be loved. My wife had someone else's fanny shaking, shaking at her and the bird being flipped off and all of these things. And I'm like, are you okay? And my wife says, I'm an ER nurse. I get spit on and cussed at and flipped off and all these things all the time. So it's what it is. I'm like, wow. Well, I'm a little more sensitive, so be nice to me, right? Well, they do this because it's a part of what they believe. It's because they believe that it honors Jesus, or they believe that the gospel is actually powerful, or they believe that, God's, that God will work through these efforts. I mean, there's a belief there. Why would we do this, or why would you do that if you didn't believe that it was effective or that it mattered? That's nonsense. 
What sense does it make for you to invest yourself and to risk things for something you don't believe in at all? That's, that's dumb. Why would you do that? Maybe there's scenarios that I can't think of that maybe you might do that. But at its root, you believe something. You're sitting here with masks on, maybe not because you think that, um, that, that, you know, that, that there's as big of a health risk as others think, but you sit there because you believe that it's in the best interest of love for those that might see a greater concern than you do. So your belief is there. There's something, it's rooted in something. Maybe it's not a health issue as much as it is a love issue. And Jesus said, whoever believes, the key that starts the engine of Christ-emulating works is belief. And Jesus says this, if you believe, you'll do the works that I do. This belief is an active belief. It's a tangible belief. It's not a tangible belief. It's not a passive or theoretical belief. Let me read these things to you very quickly because we've gone over this time and time again, but I want to mention it one more time. What we do is always the product of what we believe, either a long-standing belief, a long-standing conviction, or something we believe in the moment, for good or for bad, for better or for ill. You sat in those chairs because you believed they would hold you up. You didn't expect those chairs. Even if you would have, you still sat there. Why? Because you believed it would hold you up. Unless you wanted to be laughed at. Why would you sit in a chair that would break and fall? You discipline your kids because you believe it will be the best thing for them. Other than that, you discipline them out of anger. I don't like spanking my kids. I don't like disciplining my kids. I don't like them being upset with me. I don't like it. It grieves my heart. There are times that I want to just because it will make me feel better about my anger, and I try to stay away from that. But I discipline my kids because I believe that it is best for them. I booked a flight to Port Portland, Oregon a few days ago, going to see my good buddy for about seven days. And you all know how I feel about flying. I promise you this. If I was convinced that the plane was not going to make it to Portland, Oregon, I would not be on it. I believe, as much as I can, based on statistics, that I'm going to arrive safely in Portland, Oregon. Now, there's the whole Antifa situation that I've got to get over, but whatever. But I believe that I'm going to be okay. So my actions are rooted in what? My belief. You evangelize. Why? Because it's super comfortable to you? No. No, we're not all Antoines in here. It's not super comfortable to us. You know, Antoine witnesses to a stick. You and I are struggling, right? We're struggling to, 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 to get into that conversation because it's unnerving, because it's combative sometimes, because it can be confrontational. Even though it's out of love, we're like, I might get punched in the face or in the throat or spit on or cursed at or flipped off or have a fanny shaking at me like, like, like this lady yesterday. Who knows? Who knows? But you do it. Why? Because you believe the souls of men matter. You believe that you will give an account of your life before God or because you believe that the gospel is truly the key to the kingdom. So how do we get to better works as evidence of our faith? Well, we grow stronger in our faith. I would argue that saving faith is gifted but practiced faith is developed. A faith that can get stronger is a faith that can be developed. The more we actively pursue and trust Jesus, the stronger our faith becomes. The more that we see Him prove Himself faithful over and over again, the stronger our faith in Him becomes. 
with this type of faith, with this type of belief, Jesus make belief, Jesus makes a few promises. He says, listen, you will do the same works that I do, and he says you will do greater works than these. And let me just kind of cut to the chase here. What he's not saying is that you're going to have a more vibrant ministry than him. He's not saying that your words are going to be more powerful. He's not saying that the gospel will work better for you than it did for him. He's not saying any of these things. But it still begs the question, what does Jesus mean when he says you will do greater works than these? I think that, <coughs> excuse me, what he is saying is that this. First, we need to consider the sheer volume of what the apostles are about to witness and be directly a part of. Are you, are you with me? Here we have what's taken place so far, and this is, this is the end. This is where I'm closing with this pretty much. So I need you to, I need you to, 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 to clue in here because I want you to understand these, these greater works than these. The disciples have seen Jesus teach. They've seen Jesus do miracles. They've been witness of that. But they haven't played this large role in the spread of the gospel themselves yet. They've been students. They've been learning. And then what happens? Jesus ascends, but before he ascends, what does he do? He commissions them. He tells them, here's what you need to do. You go to all the world and you make disciples. He said, you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says, teaching them all that I have taught you and I will be with you always. And then we have right after John, and absolutely no coincidence here, you have the book of Acts. And what happens in the book of Acts? Jesus blows the lid off of everything. We see in one part in the book of Acts where the words, and they turn the world upside down. You see, we're comparing apples to oranges with regards to what the disciples were directly a part of. Keep in mind that Jesus, as we saw throughout the book of John, he shared all the time, but we see these crowds of people that were still in unbelief. It was almost like, you know, the, the, this is a Tim Keller reference you may not get, but the quarters were waiting, waiting to drop. I mean, everything's about to come uh, full circle here. The disciples go out, and then they're a part of history. They're part of a moment where the world starts to understand the gospel. In language like, and the Lord was adding to their numbers daily those who were being saved in the thousands. Massive revival. The first revival that the world has ever known of took place in the first century after Christ ascended, after he commissioned the disciples. So you can see that by comparison, what they're a part of now, what they're about to experience, has nothing compared to what they've directly been a part of yet. And so those are the greater works. And then you say, but how in the world are you saying that they're doing this? Are you saying that somehow they're responsible? Not at all. Not at all. Keep in mind that Jesus is giving them the Holy Spirit. And if he's giving them the Holy Spirit, the scripture also says that I've been crucified with Christ and it's not I who live, but Christ who lives where? In me. If you have me, you have the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So you have Every person of the triune Godhead working through these disciples to bring about greater things. And who is at fault? God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Using these men as conduits, using these men as vessels. These untrained, unlearned, and uneducated men to turn the world upside down. That's what it means that they would do greater things than these. Greater things would happen than what you've witnessed before. Greater things will happen than what you've been a part of. You've seen miracles. 
You've seen some people believe, but you're about to see the lid blown off the, the building. You're about to see everything. You're about to see revival. You're about to see all of these things, and they were going to be directly a part of that. They were giving power. They were given authority to heal people in Jesus' name. Of course, the Holy Spirit, the power of the, 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 the triune God working to bring about these things. So that's what it means when it says these greater things. Sometimes the works that come about in our lives don't come about until the foot of faith has stepped out. So just remember, when you're considering all these things and considering how a first century application applies to you now, and that the story is still being written. We have a canonized, completed scripture, but the story is still being written. The story is still unfolding. And so greater things can come from your life. Not because you are the center of the world, but because Jesus is the center and the head of all things. And this is rooted in our belief. Listen, I want to do for the kingdom. I want what I do for the kingdom to actually be rooted in my belief. I want to share with you this brief struggle. I have roles in my life that I feel, as do you, one as a pastor, one as a husband, and one as a father. And I function in very specific ways in each one of those roles. But sometimes our motives are driven by the title and by the roles to meet some kind of social expectation or social pressure instead of the way we function being rooted in what we believe. So as a pastor, if I go out witnessing, am I witnessing because my belief is that the gospel is powerful, my belief is that the souls of men matter, or is it that I just want the people of the church to believe that I'm serious about something that I may or may not be serious about? You see, one is just putting on a front to make you believe one thing, and one is doing it because I sincerely believe something that's deep and true and meaningful. And I think we all have to wrestle through that, and I just want what I do as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, I want it to be, if it's for the kingdom especially, rooted in my belief and not rooting in what's a social expectation or some kind of social normative. To close with verse 13 and 14, Jesus just says this. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Obviously, this does not mean that you can have every material, every great thing you've ever wanted. Obviously, this does not mean that I want to raise, all I've got to do is pray for it and ask the Lord. I want a better job, all I've got to do is pray and ask the Lord. Obviously, this doesn't mean that, hey, I have cancer, I don't want to have it anymore. All I have to do is pray and ask the Lord, and he says, it will be given to me. Anything that I ask for in his name will be given to me. It does not mean that, so what does it mean? There's a connection between contentment, belief, works, and answered prayer. If we contend and find, if we find contentment and sufficiency in Jesus, if we believe unto, uh, to, if we believe unto good God honoring works, this will create for us a disposition and a posture that will ensure that our efforts and our prayers are lining up with the will of God, and that is when He answers our prayers.
God does everything according to the counsel of his will. If you pray and he answers, it must mean that your prayer lined up with his will. And so the question then becomes, how do we know that we are best in the will of God? A strong belief that produces God-honoring works is one of the best, best ways that we've been given in Scripture that we can know that we're in the will of God. If our conviction, if what we know from the Bible, if our allegiance, our obedience, if that is what drives us, that deeply rooted belief that gives birth to action, if that's what happens, then the action of our prayers being rooted in our belief, which would then be connected to the will of God, or at least should be, that's when we see that God answers prayers. And I believe that's what he's saying right here in this text. So I had five courses and this metaphorical meal that I wanted to share with you today. Not 17, although five took long enough. I hope that you would consider these things. I hope that you would process them, meditate, and just see the beauty and the grace in Jesus' interaction with Philip. As Philip is saying, just show us a little more and we'll be good. And Jesus says, you've got everything that you could possibly want. And you have everything you could ever need in me. And I pray that we see Jesus the same way. Let's pray. And after that, we'll all exit. And if you want a fellowship in the hot sun, you are free to do so. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you again for your grace. Lord, we do thank you for this word. We thank you for the realities here. Lord, I understand some of this was a little technical, Lord, maybe a little heady in places. And I pray that I pray that those type of things, when we come across them in scriptures, Lord, would not derail us or dissuade us or discourage us. Lord, it would cause us to really sit and think more. Lord, because as much as the heart, as much as the emotion, as much as the feeling, as much as the core of who we are, Lord, is involved with who we are in Christ and, and how we live and move and have our being, Lord, there is most definitely a connection with our thoughts with our reasoning. Lord, your word says that blessed is the one who knows and understands me. It even says, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom or a mighty man boast in his might or a wealthy man boast in his wealth, but let he who, let he who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me. Lord, I pray that our knowing you will just be one aspect of our relationship to you, but that we would seek to understand you, and according to the scriptures, that we would seek you where you may be found. And Lord, that you would make revelation upon revelation to us, not new, obviously, but Lord, that you would enlighten our minds and help us to understand more of who you are so that we could represent you well. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.